I've always admired John Atkinson for managing to stay completely below the media radar, yet still be very successful. He appears to always be working and can be found doing everything from pop to electronics to classical. When nowadays the route to success for many drummers seems to be get a YouTube channel, demonstrate chops and amass social media friends, John has done it with a killer groove, hard work and a genuine interest in getting the job done well. He's also a massive fan of electronics. John can be found live with artists such as Kim Wilde or Howard Jones, recording remote drum tracks for artists, or, to pick one very appealing example, playing kit with an orchestra in the Royal Albert Hall for a Doctor Who concert at the proms. When he's not playing, he's programming or composing for film and TV. I caught up with John via Skype just before he went off on tour in Australia. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. Making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Hi, John. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. Uh, we'll pretend Perfect. we haven't been speaking for the last uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> Indeed. And yes. uh, about lots of other things and putting the world to rights. Yep. So I've, I've already done my introduction so people know who you are. If they don't Fabulous. know who you are, they, they, they should do and they should look at you. And I think it's johnatkinsondrums.com. I mean, we've known each other for, I'm guessing, about 20 years. It's, a, it's got to be about that. Yeah, you were at uh, Wembley Drum Centre and yeah. I used to, uh, used to drive up there and, uh, and, and get exciting, uh, exciting things to play with. And and I couldn't work out who this guy was who came in and he'd just come from um, you know um, Abbey Road or wherever and, and I'd never heard <laughs> of him but he seemed to be working constantly and that that well, still seems to continue. It, no one seems yes. to know you but you are always working. I I feel very fortunate in that regard. Um, yes, I I'm appallingly bad at self promotion, <laughs> and um, but uh, yeah, it's it's never it's never bothered me that I'm not particularly good at that. How come you got into this? How? What's your? Why did you get into electronics? Why? Because you. I mean, you're a drummer. Yeah, I am. I am absolutely. I mean, that that's kind of. Uh, I mean, I started out playing piano and then trumpet. Neither of which I was any good at, and didn't really enjoy either of them. But um, I started playing drums when I was about fourteen, and loved it. And uh, my parents couldn't stop me playing, um, which I think probably was was where where my sort of interest in elect- electronics came from. Because I realised that if I got myself an electronic kit. Um, I could just play all the time without driving my parents absolutely insane. Uh, I was always qu- quite interested also in, in sort of programming as well, which was something I find, I, I do find fun. And I, I, I sort of would count myself as a programmer as well, as well as sort of a drummer. And I got myself a drum machine sort of really early on, actually, uh, which was a Yamaha RX-5, which was uh, which was great. And um, <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. Uh, just, just fantastic. Um, and so what I did is I, bought a, a Simmons TMI and I, I bought a job lot of those Roland pads that are sort of uh, triangular and appear to be made of formica and set a, set a kit up and sort of was triggering sounds off the off the drum machine using the TMI and 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 the pads and it was great and I you know I I, I loved it being able to sort of play grooves with different sounds which really sort of appealed and I love being able to sort of you know have a bass drum being played with my right hand that I could make a groove that sort of had had an interesting bass drum part that you wouldn't be able to play just with your foot, which was which was great, and and that that sort of that rig just got progressively bigger, really. <laughs> um, so I bought, I bought myself an Octopad, which was fun, and and um, you know you could have all sorts of interesting samples on that with an acoustic kit. And then I realised that if I bought myself a sound module that wasn't just playing drum stuff, it was playing keyboard things i could actually be the keyboard player in the band as well so i did that 
which was hilarious because um, with the octopad you could stack three notes together and play them, play a chord simultaneously, and then sustain it with a, with a sustain pedal. So I used to play pads and horn stuff off off this octopad with a uh, Roland U220, which was great. And then I, I sort of you know bought an S900, and then that sort of felt like the sky was the limit really as far as sounds because I could just get anything. And what sort of stuff are you doing? What, who were you playing with back then? So, I mean, this is when I'm like 15, 16. Oh, right. So I was just literally just playing in, in bands with mates at school or um, there was a band that I was in that was sort of doing pop stuff that where the other guys in the band were sort of in their mid-20s and were trying to get a deal. And we were doing, you know, Diamonds of London doing a session in downtime overnight, which was uh, which was great fun. Yeah, just, just sort of doing pop stuff, really, doing the sort of thing that, that I guess a lot of people do, being in a band and trying to get signed and, and stuff. So when you then you moved down to London later? I moved to London in uh, 93. At that point, sort of my use of electronics sort of dropped off a little bit, actually. For maybe 10 years, I was basically just doing band stuff with bands that weren't into electronics. Because when we first met yes. uh, and you were coming in from... Abbey Road, yeah, a bit, and yeah. you you were doing. The, I mean, I remember you came in once and you told me you'd just been doing the, the the click programming. Oh gosh, yeah. Well, that was that was sort of a a really um, fortuitous in for me and a big big sort of step up in my career, I guess. Which was I was doing a session at uh, Air actually, and uh, Sir George Martin was in the next room doing an album that that he recorded it was sort of his solo album. I, I knew his son Giles. Um, quite well and later we were we were in a band together actually got chatting and um, talking about sort of drum programming and stuff and um, a couple of weeks later I was programming the click on on a um, Celine Dion record for, for George fantastic which was uh, which was I mean a, a, an enormous learning experience obviously and you know I was whatever I was 23 and sitting there programming an MPC and the band was um Ian Thomas, Dave Hartley on keys, Trevor Barry on bass. I mean, you know, London's A-list. very finest. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the reason that I was there was that was that that was um, doing. Actually, that was that was a that was a different session. Actually, that was that was doing a um, a track for for George's solo album for Phil Collins' version of Golden Slumbers. Oh yeah, which is sort of all over the place timing wise, and it's got a drum solo in the middle and all that. And that was sort of the reason that I was was programming the click was that Yanto was putting drums down on it and then phil was going to replace the kit later so right. obviously needed the needed the click yeah for, for phil to be able to replace stuff on yeah. later. and the tempo is literally all over the place in the nicest possible way i mean that's, that's not a dig at ringo it, it, it's it's a song that is put together with multiple sections all of which work at a different tempo and so that was that was sort of um that was what i was there for really and uh, and george was george was great you know he he was um it, it was a an honor to sort of be in the room with him producing and totally get the enormous success that he had because he was just so great with handling people you know there's me 23 and got no idea what i'm doing really and uh, he was he was very kind and um and 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 sort of off the back of that i mean that was towards the end of george's career off the back of that did quite a few things with uh, with him and i think from that moment i think that me being in the room with those sort of guys it just it helped with the guys that that knew who I was like Ralph I I had a lot of uh, lessons with Ralph Salmon sort of maybe seven or eight years previous to that and um, straight after that he got me into Depp on his show that he was doing at that, at that time 
because you know I'd, I could obviously handle the pressure hand, handle the pressure yeah exactly that so, so that really was a, a massive in then wasn't it it was a huge in and um yeah I feel feel really sort of fortunate to it worked out like that that being said um <laughs> I knew my way around the MPC 60 and, and could actually you know do what then was was pretty complicated which was programming sort of realistic sounding tempo changes because that that's quite a hard thing isn't it it wasn't easy at all yeah yeah um, there's also a bar of five eight in the middle, which has a row, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then a cellarando immediately afterwards, which was yeah. So it, it, it was it was tough, but I knew what I was doing. I mean, nowadays that sort of thing, programming clicks to, to do oh, five. It's really easy. It's yeah, so yeah, simple. Yeah, yeah back draw, then, yeah, draw it in in Pro Tools. It's, yeah. it's really simple. So I mean, so this is when you were in your um, early mid twenties. Yes. What about the whole um, the sample library thing? Because also another thing you did was the the real drums, free access yeah. time four. Yeah. So that would have been when would that have been? But in two thousand and two, I started playing drums on a West End show, uh, which was Bombay Dreams, and I'd sort of been booked based on the fact that I knew my way around electronics. And the rig then, in fact, you came in and I, show, I, didn't I, you? I yeah, sat yeah. behind you a few yeah. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a TD10 at the, at the time, was sort of the flagship sort of front end controller, um, as I would like to call it. But I was using it as a MIDI controller with two S6000s. Yeah. And um, basically, they had a, a show where the music had already been written by A.R. Rahman, um, he of composing for um, Danny Boyle and so on. Um, and uh, the drums were uh, some pop stuff and some things which were designed to sound like a, an Indian sort of celebration pageant. So loads of stuff going on. I mean, people are perhaps more familiar with perhaps Brazilian street music where you've got, you know, multiple surdo players and multiple, multiple pandero players. And it's a similar sort of similar sort of vibe. And uh, they basically gave me the stems of this thing and just said, make it playable. So it was a case of myself and Lee Mack um, just chop stuff up in Pro Tools and put it on the S6000, made it playable on the uh, with the with the V drums. So I mean, it was it was fun. I mean, there was, it was hard to play. <laughs> there was it was some proper four way coordination going on. It, it, was, it was basically you wrote the pad, didn't you? You I did. They, yeah. Was it true they just gave you a, a wadge <laughs> of blank paper and said write it? <laughs> they gave me they gave me um, pieces of blank paper that had the title of the song and the bar numbers written on there and basically <laughs> basically said could we fill it in so it was exactly that but but you know it was great and there was an opportunity to break out all my sort of four-way coordination stuff that i'd been 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 learning um you know doing doing things like um gary uh, gary chester book and and you know uh, all those sort of things but actually use it in a in a in a musical environment in a musical way because you actually needed to be able to play bells on you know each crotchet with your left foot and and play this sort of um shuffle thing with your your hands sort of round the as it was six um six sort of tom pads with this sort of moving um filtered thing on the on the snare of the left hand i mean because one thing i remember from coming sitting behind you and watching you was you played something and i, and I had to ask you afterwards what it was and you said right. oh no yeah it, it's right so the, the kick is on the floor on my right foot uh, but after eight bars, the kick goes to my right hand and yes. the bells go to my right foot <laughs> and my snare is on the left hand but up on a cymbal pad or something. It was something yeah. totally mad, but it, yeah. it was the way it was the way it worked. But it yeah. mel- meant that depping it out was quite tricky. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really hard. It was really hard. A couple of people came and looked at it and just sort of looked at, it, looked at me as if I was completely mad. 
but I mean, I, I, it, it was, but it, that was the way to, to solve the, the problem that was presented, which was how to how to make this this playable. And I think that sort of belief that anything is is doable has sort of continued on sort of through through other acts, really. And I think it's I think it's great to be able to to, to do that, to be able to you know play three different drum kits in a song if that's what's needed, and just, just you know or, or play some monstrously complicated cowbell part <laughs> <laughs> on twelve cowbells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So long as you can do it in a way in, in a way that musically makes sense, it, it, that to me makes sense of all those sort of independence things that we learned growing up um, that, that otherwise are just exercises. Did you do the uh, the real drums thing for that then? So uh, yes, yeah, so sorry. Going going back. Um, so at that point, I was at home. I had a, a D drum four, which I'd bought bought from you. Was using then uh, Emagic's um, EXS twenty four sampler in Logic. And just sort of felt, and and it was something that a few people were talking about. Like, w- wouldn't it be great if when you hit a kick drum pad, you hear the sound of the kick drum going through the kick mic down the kick channel, and uh, you hear the sound of the kick drum coming through overhead mics and a snare mic and tom mics and all that? And wouldn't it be much more realistic than what we have at the moment, which is a kick drum sample that comes down the kick channel, uh, and, and that's it? Now this might obviously sound a bit familiar to anybody who's used to superior or addictive drums or or any of those things but at the time it hadn't been done this was way ahead way ahead so i basically went into air studios and spent a day sampling my kit and a year chopping the samples up <laughs> and making it making it playable and uh, in you know um I'd, I'd done a sort of dry run of this uh, at a friend's studio over in zurich and it worked really well and it was great and then literally as i finished up superior came out and you know did it properly but i do still have those have those samples. was always sort of subject to the limitations of the excess 24 i used it on a couple of um you know tracks which did pretty well and it sounds like drums um which is great it's my 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 drums recorded um through air montserrat pre's um and and the most beautiful microphones um through radar converters into pro tools hd at um 96k um, and um uh, i learned a lot about sort of noise suppression and also um sample management you know because i mean there's, there's thousands of samples thousands and thousands of, of them uh, also you've just brought up superior because when superior yes. came up everything changed didn't it because it, it, it suddenly yeah. it was like wow you know we can do drums in a in a laptop so yes. you were using ddrum4 into superior yes i was i uh, i i still would maintain that the ddrum is is probably one of the best midi controllers um out there um for lots of reasons it, it feels very natural to play it and uh, the velocity curves which I think is is, uh, is one of the most important things. I mean, I, I, I know it is one of the fastest responding uh, MIDI controllers out there, and I think that's I think that is important. But I think more important is how it feels to play. And the D drum has been my get out of jail front end MIDI controller in quite a few situations where others have have sort of not been quite up to the task in some respect. The D drum is it, quite quirky. The D drum, but I basically managed to uh reprogram it so it sort of makes sense um more sort of general midi notation no, uh, so, uh, note values uh the hats are a bit quirky hats um, are very weird on the d-drum yeah yeah i mean w- w- so what i did was um and i i've done this sort of later on when i've been programming uh main stage setups for various artists is 
that the Roland TD20, which was something that I was using with Howard Jones when I first started with Howard, has a sort of specific set of uh, MIDI. It has a specific MIDI map that sort of is it general. I think Roland called it general MIDI extended. It, it's, it's GM, but with additions. So I sort of changed the D-drum so that it worked like that. And then any additional programming was done either within main stage or, or whatever, um, or superior or, or, or whatever. So it, it works well. I mean, I think now I'm sort of stuck between a few different camps as to, as to what, what's the best out there. I'm, I'm now very kindly Yamaha. I'm in Dorsey of, the, of their equipment, and there are a lot of great things about the, the Yamaha as a front end. The hats being the main thing, really, um, which is that they, uh, the uh, DTX 900 as a front end for Superior, the hi hats are, are, are very, very good indeed, and uh, different different note numbers and the edge and the sort of the amount of open and and so on is all very, very good. But um, yeah, in terms of playability, the D drum is still uh, still right up there. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast. We were talking once, and you said about now. I'm quite prepared to say here that if this is completely wrong, I'll edit this out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, about when you were doing, uh, when you were using Superior with the D drum, yeah, and sent it off to Bob Clear Mountain. I think I know what you're going to say, which is that Bob um, assumed that it was real drums. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that situation, not just with Bob, who I think is one of obviously the great mix engineers, but uh, that that has happened with so in so many situations that I've sent stuff that's been done in Superior and nobody has questioned whether it's the real thing. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Right, so let's, let's, just, let's just make that exceptionally clear for, for people listening. Yeah. So uh, you were using D-Drum 4 into Superior Drummer on a, on a Mac yeah, and uh, you exported all the tracks, so you get the bass drum track with all the spill in the background of the snare. Yeah, they they have they, there's there's two ways of working with Superior. The first the first way is sort of in in very simple stupid mode, which is you, you plug you have your MIDI front end into it and you play it, and it comes up stereo. You uh, using the inbuilt mixer, uh, which is great, and uh, I use that live a lot, and it's fabulous. There is a second way of using it, which is that you record a MIDI performance into whichever DAW you're using, and then you export uh, within Superior, you export that performance out into stems, um, which would be as if it was every individual mic, as if it was recorded. And that's done with a, there's a big red button inside, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's its own its own sort of proprietary thing that it, that it does. And what that does is instead of doing it in the sort of slimmed down mode that is not too CPU intensive to be able to play live, uh, it, it, it prints every microphone, every hit through every microphone of, of which there are multiple microphones and with full dynamic range and everything's printed onto everything and i mean it, it is it's great it's really really good and i've used it in so many situations and nobody questions it you know I, <laughs> the thing that you do have to be careful of is uh, just making sure that you re- if you are recording at midi that you retain some sort of element of liveness in the performance <laughs> you don't, don't go down the route of quantizing it that totally gives it away but um, but yeah, no, I, I've actually taken now when I'm doing stuff in that situation to um, recording my performance completely um, freehand and then going in you know, if, if there are any sort of little anomalies going and doing a bit of tidying and then uh, doing a beat detective um, tidy up 
um, which I sort of feel like I've got a little bit more control over how that's going to going to end up. Um, what? So you beat Detective <clears throat> the audio rather than beat Detective the audio rather than changing the MIDI? Really? Yes. yes. <laughs> which uh, seems seems okay. completely crazy, but um, simply because when you're when you're doing the MIDI, uh, when you're dealing with the MIDI, it um, it doesn't sound necessarily how it's going to sound when you get to the point of printing it out with the audio. So, for instance, um, when you are still running it with MIDI, you're uh, because there's a round. Uh, this is properly getting nerdy here. There's a round robin thing with each each hit. For instance, the snare drum have, has however many round robins they have, and you don't know which one you're going to get. Whereas when you get oh, to aw- audio, you do know what you're going to get, and therefore, I think um, that's why I'm saying sort of not not doing the quanti- any sort of timing adjustment. Um, at a MIDI level, do it at an audio level because you never know whether you're going to, you know, if I record a performance and it sounds sounds great and then you, you quantize the MIDI and you go, oh, it sounds amazing, it's perfectly in time, and then you hear the audio of how that sounds when it's been printed out, it's like, mm, actually, it's got no life in it at all. So um, it, it, that's just sort of my current way of working. Do you, would you say that Superior is still your sort of main weapon of choice? Yeah, I think it probably is, actually. I mean, it, it sort of depends. It depends entirely what I'm doing. Um, if I'm doing something where somebody wants it to sound like acoustic drums, then yes, absolutely. Unless, unless it's brushes, in which case, <laughs> if it's brushes, I mic the kit up, and and that that's obviously um, that's obviously a better way of doing it. And I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that in the studio here. But if I, it, you know, if you want something that sounds as good as it was recorded at Hit Factory or Avatar or whatever, then I would I would use Superior. If if it's a pro- more of a programming thing, then there are a million and one ways to skin a cat. And currently, the current rig is uh, using battery and finding the samples and then dragging the samples into the timeline in Pro Tools <laughs> and then moving them around. That's sort of my favorite way of working. And the samples can come from anywhere. So I've got a little Teenage Engineering OP1. I've got my Moog sitting here done a track for um, Howard Jones where I've recorded all sorts of random sort of like hand claps and and um, and stuff just done them analog you know <laughs> with a microphone and clapping in front of it percussion is almost always live yeah uh, just for feel yeah mic up mic up the shaker or tambourine or whatever um, so it sort of depends I mean you know I used to use it like I said earlier I used to use the MPC 60 a lot which is great and then my MPC 60 died a horrible death and um, I I'd already sold my MPC 2000 XL and just never got around to replacing it, really. One thing, seeing as you brought up MPCs, uh, the mm. whole MPC feel thing. Yeah. Do you think anything in software has got as close to that feel? Um, that's a really difficult question because I think maybe different people mean different things yes. when they talk about the feel. It's not just about timing. It's about how it plays as an instrument. And I think the thing that the MPC had or has more than anything else is the feel of the pads if you're programming something in and if you're programming something in where it's four on the floor on the kick drum and um you know two and four on the snare and the hats are playing eights and it's straight then you could do it on anything but if you're doing something that's got a little bit of something to it by which i mean swing 50, 50 yeah 52 yeah. percent mpc swing yeah um then you can replicate that in logical Pro Tools or, or whatever, but it's not about that. It's about the feel of the pads and how they how the velocity responds when you if you're recording a kick drum pattern that goes dum, da dum, dum, 
Didum. You know, it, it's got a feel to it that's about the velocity response and not not just about the timing of it. But definitely a combination um, of the two rather than just yeah the timing of it, but it's also about the touch. Um, and, and that's the that's the essence of groove is that it's it's not about perfection or imperfection. It's about it's about feel of the phrasing and, and making that making that work. And I think I think that sort of that feel is exactly why the D drum keeps not being sold. <laughs> you know, um, that that would be the same for any any instrument. You know, if you try if you try and play a hi hat hi hat um, pattern on something that's set to have no velocity control at all. It's going to feel unnatural, no matter how swingy you make it or how groovy you make it. Um, it, it it's a combination of, of the, feel, the feel of the placement of the notes and also the touch that you have um, to, to make it work. You know, the difference between how Jeff Porcaro and, and um, you know, John Robinson sound on, on their hats when they're playing 16s is about touch. No one's going to say either of them is 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 out <laughs> no, timing no, exactly. wise. It's exactly. just it's well, the other it's the other well, things. The, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? I mean you know the reality. And if you uh, if you watch that uh, Jeff Porcaro video when he's talking about uh, and and you actually listen to what he's playing when he's playing straight eights, they're not remotely straight, um, and they, they 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 have that beautiful feel. And I think that's what people talk about when they talk about the MPC feel is 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 that it's um, it was easy. Um, or easier to dial in um, something that didn't sound mechanical than than previous drum machines had before that. You know, MPC came out what '88, I would think, and before that you'd had what the Lindrum and the you know 808 and the um, RX5 and all all those sort of all those sort of things for which it was not easy to to make it have a natural feel, um, both in terms of um, how it played, but also t- you know timing wise. When I listen back, I've got um, an R8 over there, over there yeah. at the moment. And when you program something on the R8 or on an RX5, it's got a certain something to it. Yes. Which I can't recreate on Logic or yeah. or and and it can't be touched because I'm I'm basically it doesn't matter about the dynamics. Yeah. It, I can't work out why that is. Is yeah. why that is. Well, I mean. It- I can't necessarily speak for either of those machines. I, mean, I had an R8 years and years ago, but I can't necessarily speak for how it is because I haven't heard one for sort of 20 years. But um, with a lot of those machines, it's imperfection. I mean, a, per- a perfect example would be something like an 808, which I do have experience with, which which is that every hit is not the same um, because it's analog. And it's not just playing back a sample. It, it's it's creating a, a sound wave from scratch each time. And the nature of analog oscillators is that they are imperfect. And that's kind of why why the Moog and the OP1 get a bit of use here is that they are close to replicating that sort of un uh, sort of non expected behaviour. If they, if that's a word, non expected. Um, but um, but there's something to be said. For, I mean, I, I've probably got. I don't know. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of 808 snare samples, literally hundreds. Um, <laughs> but actually, I get far more interest out of programming it on the on the Moog because it is analog, and you know, you just play it in, and and it's different each time, and that that's quite interesting. That that interests me, you know? and I'm sure you get the same out of the that, uh, Nord Nord drum synth uh, thing as well, or, or you know, wh- whichever uh, analog machine you're using. But I, you know, that that sort of imperfection thing is is quite interesting i think um my favorite quote about electronic uh gear is from jean-michel jarre and he was right. asked about you know uh, 
analog gear or digital gear and he said oh analog gear every time analog's got imperfections and imperfections are what makes music interesting and he's absolutely right absolutely absolutely and without getting too incredibly sort of um tediously nerdy about that but i think i think that's the very nature of groove which is something that that people sort of seem to have forgotten about in this in this age of being able to quantize everything is that they do quantize everything and if everything is quantized it, it sounds lifeless which obviously that don't get me wrong that that applies that that's something that you might be striving for in some sort of genres but in you know the ability to perfectly time and tune vocals for instance and or guitars and or drums or whatever leads to things not sounding groovy in a way that you know you know, perfect example would be listening to something like "I Wish" with Stevie Wonder, and you hear the, all over the place. Yeah, hear the drums on its own. It's like, yeah. oh gosh, you know, it really is all over the place. Um, but the whole track put together is fantastic. It's wonderful. Yeah. Same with same with all that chic stuff. You know, if you yeah. actually took it apart, it drifts all over the place, but it it works really, really well. And you know, bringing that up up to date, you know, think about that Daft Punk record. If all that was quantized, it wouldn't be the same record i mean it would be a, it would be an interesting record but it wouldn't be anything like as um, groovy i don't think because then you've got a bunch of fantastic players all sort of playing consistently but slightly not perfectly in time with each other and that is the nature of groove that that is inconsistent going back to you yes because um, you've also done a, a lot of film music and a lot yep. of tv music which yep. i'm guessing you use e-drums for all the time because you do it at home it sort of depends actually i mean i, I did the music for um uh, Rhubarb and Custard Series 2, uh, so that would have been 2005, uh, and that was all done um, <laughs> with uh, kick, snare and hats and a cymbal um, and a couple of mics. So it sort of it sort of depends. <laughs> it really does depend. I've sort of tried to avoid in my writing, I think, going down too much, going down the route of uh, what a lot of other people do, which is using too many virtual instruments and try and I try and make it as um, uh, as real as as possible. And if I am using software instruments, it's I would try and use it in a more interesting way if I can. So the last film score that I did, for instance which um, you won't be able to see in the UK because it hasn't been released in the UK. But it was a, um, a thriller, uh, quite a lot of which was um, set, uh, sort of Stephen Burkhoff um, stars in it. And uh, quite a lot of the film is set in the back of a, a car, uh, which happens to be a BMW 3 Series. So I sampled a load of BMW 3 Series noises, um, a bit of engine noise and a bit of tapping it and, you know, uh, starting it up and stuff and using those as some of them as convolutions for reverbs for synth sounds and some of them um, to sort of make interesting percussive noises um, so yeah try and try and do something a bit bit different and interesting that's different from what anybody else might be doing really can you just take us through um your current setup so yes. with howard at the moment howard jones yeah what are you using with him so the current the current setup um, sort of started uh, its life uh, when I joined Howard's band. I was playing uh, acoustic kit, fully acoustic. Then he decided that he wanted to tour a version of his first two albums, and as only Howard can do, he set uh, these rules for for how how we were going to approach it, which was that every sound that we played had to have originally existed on the two inch tape. So every sound had to be lifted off the tape and made playable, which was a bit of a mission. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Robbie Bronneman um, sort of went through with the two-inch tape and 
basically had to remix the album because of course what's on, what's on the tape doesn't have any effect on it no. um, or mostly doesn't have an effect on it and um, a lot of the keyboard sounds were chords so those had to be stripped out using Melodyne to make those sort of individual notes which could then be played by Howard yeah. but the drums it was an interesting um, experience in putting that together because of course a lot of those drum parts had never been played ever they, they'd been programmed um, and were not necessarily particularly playable um, and some of them had multiple sounds. So I'm thinking, for instance, the track Specialty off uh, Dream Into Action has th- basically three drum kits with three different sections of the song. So working out a way to make that playable was was really interesting. To do that, I, uh, uh, through Howard, I was using, um, he had a deal with Roland, so I was using a TD20. And um, I was using Mainstage, which obviously I, uh, from my previous work, knew the EXS24 sampler pretty well. So um, that that sort of seemed the sensible way to way to do it. So that was the birth of of that setup. Since since then, sort of have, have moved away from Roland um, uh, from the TD20, and I'm now uh, with Howard using the alternate mode Trapcat, which is great and um, looks different. You know, yeah. it looks a little bit like an ironing board, but um, you know, if you if you can get past get past that, it's uh, it's quite interesting to look at. And and it's been interesting that that of course. Because people can see uh, more what you're playing, people. It's been really interesting. I think people are unaware that when somebody sits behind a set of drums, they are actually doing things with their feet. Yeah. Which, because I'm sitting behind a trap cat, people can actually see my feet. The number of people that seem to notice that <laughs> when we do TVs and stuff, there's always there's always a camera on my feet at some point, <laughs> which is uh, quite good fun. So that's the rig with Howard, which is a trap cat with some additional pads, sort of symbol pads. Um, the visualites, yeah. The visualite symbols, which are going through. Um, the visualites are going through an Alesis trigger I/O, which is sort of fine, um, into a MacBook Air, which is great for what we're doing because it's small and light and uh, works quickly. Um, Motu sound card just got the new Motu AVB ultralight, which is good and resolves many of the problems that I was having with the previous ones, mainly that it's core compliant, which is definitely <laughs> worth worth looking for if you're looking for a sound card for, for doing what i'm doing definitely get something that is core compliant um by which i mean the drivers are built into the operating system on a mac um don't know about pcs never used a pc but on a mac um having not not having something third party which is the interface between the the physical din midi interface or the usb input and the application that you're using is definitely worth it because um the way that um midi is handled within a mac um is great and if you just put something in between it doesn't necessarily behave as well as it might do as i've discovered <laughs> um but yeah the, the new moto avb is very good um also had success with the rme stuff again just all core compliant and um yeah works works very well so yeah so that's a new version of main stage um and um and the macbook air with a front end of um of the trap cat and the reason you're using main stage is principally just um it, it, I, I don't think there's anything else really like it in in that respect um it, it um not that not that would do sort of everything so i'm running the xs24 um and i have a different one for each song so the uh, all the patch changing is done within Mainstage. I don't do anything sort of on on the front end, whatever yeah. that might be. Um, and I, as as per Howard's records, which all had live hi hats on them, so I have a, a 
uh, an instance of superior drummer that is at a concert level, so that it, uh, which means that it applies to every patch. And then um, as I step through the patches, the kick, snare, toms, cymbals, and all, whatever, all change, and they're all samples, which are the ones lifted lifted from the two inch. Right. Um, sampled with effect, um, which is another big thing, obviously. So um, you're not affecting them in the main <clears throat> stage at all. No, well, I am on a couple of things. Like some things might have EQ where we, you know, which will bring me. This is a proper Radio Two link. Uh, bring me to to my big bugbear at the moment, which is um, which is about outputs. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Subscribe to eDrumInfo.com. That's the end of part one. You can also listen to part two of this interview with John Atkinson on the site now.